time. And in doing so, over the years, I've noticed some trends. The uh, more recent movies seem to often involve princes from tiny, fictional European countries who come to rescue women, generally from America, from their mundane or unhappy lives. And the older movies were a bit different. The older movies, they, they consistently involved grumpy, Scrooge-like characters who needed to get into the spirit of Christmas. Sometimes they literally involved a Scrooge. Now you might look at such movies and think, you know, how are these things really you know, fitting for the Christmas season, for the Advent season? You know, I think Isaiah 11 nicely brings those trends together. Shows us how they're oh so fitting for the Advent season. Because when I think these, when these filmmakers make these films about princes coming to rescue, when they make these films about people getting into the spirit of Christmas, they are, in fact, inadvertently touching on themes which really are important to consider at this time of year. Things which even the prophet Isaiah talks about in Isaiah chapter 11, which we're going to read now. The word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We are coming to the, the end of the, the Advent season. 
You know, the time when Christians historically have, have thought about the, the coming of Jesus Christ, the arrival of the little baby to Mary and Joseph. But Advent isn't just about the arrival of a baby. It's about the arrival of a prince. A prince who is now king of the universe. At Christmas time, we rejoice in the arrival of the son of the king of heaven, the heir of all things. A newborn son he was also an heir to the throne of David, the greatest king of God's people, Israel. Advent is about the surprising, magnificent arrival of our prince. And he comes somewhat anonymously. I like the, the prince who initially hides his identity in so many of those Christmas movies we can see nowadays. But of course, we, we the readers of the Bible, we, we know who he is. We know who the babe is who is given to Mary and Joseph. Even if the people around him were somewhat oblivious to his true identity. Advent isn't just about the arrival of a baby. It's also about the coming of someone who changes everything for us. Who changes how we live and think and feel in the midst of a cold, dark world. See, Jesus, we might say, came to put us all in the Christmas spirit. All of the time. He was born, and he now rules. So that things like peace, hope, joy, love, they aren't just something to experience a a few weeks of the year. Jesus wants his followers to to embody, you know, what is sometimes called the, the spirit of Christmas. Every season, every week, every month, every day. And Jesus is a king who breathes the Holy Spirit into us that that we can experience this very real change Now we live, act, think, feel. This afternoon we're going to look at Isaiah 11, look at it in more depth, and see that a king has appeared to change the world. The beginning of our text, Isaiah, he prophesies, uh, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Now, you, you need to understand to get this picture. Jesse, he was the father of the famous King David, the greatest of the kings of Israel. The David who is also referenced by an angel of the Lord who who addresses Joseph as Joseph, son of David. 
Jesse, David, Joseph, Jesus. They're all part of one grand family tree. Now, at the time of the New Testament, the time of the Gospel of Matthew, which we read earlier, the family tree really does look more like a stump than a flourishing tree. Jesse's descendants, David's descendants and line. They were no longer a grand family. They no longer ruled. By all accounts, the family was a shadow of its former self. Now think about how in the Christmas story, there is no guest room for Mary and Joseph. There is no grand home in which the family of David dwells. Now why does Isaiah talk about a shoot that comes from a stump? Especially that of Jesse? Why not of the stump of David? Well, because the point is that the one Isaiah is talking about is a new David. He isn't David reborn or, or reincarnated, but he's the spiritual successor of David. One who would do what David did, but better. Someone who, like David, we'd be born in obscurity, but come to rule God's people. One who would possess the Spirit of God in abundance. One who would promote the worship, the true worship of the Lord. Someone like David, but better. See, here's the thing. Jesus is our prince. Come to rescue us. Not in a a romantic sense, mind you. But nevertheless, in a loving one, a caring one. He came to earth out of love for us. And he has fought to claim us. Protect us, save us out of love for us. He has faced the devil for us, faced death for us, faced the just wrath of God against our sins for us. He came to rescue out of love. Do you recognize your need for rescue? Do you recognize the world's need for rescue? Because I tell you today, the world needs rescue. And I tell you today, you and I need rescue. I know, many of us have learned to be, to be pretty hardened, to be pretty callous when it comes to evil in the world, when it comes to, to suffering in the world. Now we see corruption all around us. We see things broken all around us. And it would be tempting for us to just say, that's just how things are. 
No, we, we justify the brokenness within us, within our lives and our relationships by saying, well, no one's perfect. But we're decent people. But here's the thing. We really shouldn't be content with how the world works or what we're like. We should be hungry for better, hungry for more. And we need to be turning to God and asking him for it. Repent, believe, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. That is the Apostle Peter's great command to people who cried out to him, how can we be saved? It starts with us recognizing that we are messed up, that we are under the power of evil, And then it goes to believing that Jesus, that little baby who was born, is the one who can clear up that mess. And then it goes to rejoicing that we are sent the Holy Spirit so that we might already at this time begin to experience better, experience more. See, Isaiah, he predicted concerning our prince that he would have a a close relationship with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, we are told. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, knowledge, fear of the Lord. You can think of how, you know, Jesus, he, he began his earthly ministry with the Spirit descending from heaven and coming to rest upon him after he was baptized by John. And after that, the Holy Spirit would be his constant companion. See, at Advent, we we think about the coming of the Son of God. But here's the thing. He was not sent alone. Another was sent with him, would be with him throughout his life, throughout his ministry, throughout his work. But this one is also sent to us as well. The spirit which rested on Jesus Christ can come to rest on you and I. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, the fear of the Lord, all those good things. It's also sent to believers today that we might experience the better, that we might recognize the need for the better. We have the Spirit sent to us who helps us to believe in our Savior, helps us to be more like our Savior, 
and prepares us for that day when we will see our Savior for ourselves face to face. That might be an intimidating thought for Jesus was, is a great person, an amazing person, someone who who does everything he is called to do well. Now Isaiah said, he shall not judge by what his eyes see or, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Now, ancient kings, you have to understand, they were the the supreme judges of the land. There was no separation of the the judicial and the legislative branches of government. Now, the world didn't have supreme courts. It had kings. It had emperors. Isaiah is saying, our king won't judge rashly, unfairly. He isn't going to judge people based on what other people have said or the rumors that have been spread. He experienced that for himself, certainly. People judged him based on rumors and, and lies, but he isn't going to do that to anyone else. He would, has, lived, judged, rightly. So, unlike us in many cases. For in truth, how many of us can say that we have never judged someone else unfairly, never spoken of anyone else unfairly, never thought of someone else on the basis of what a third party told us? No, we have in Jesus Christ, our perfect king, our perfect judging figure. We're told with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Those words might alarm you, concern you. We think about all the ways in which we have, you know, failed to be like Christ. To be perfect as Christ is perfect. Perhaps we are a guest here, a a visitor. We hear these words, but with, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. We think this, this Christian faith, this seems a bit much. This Jesus that they're talking about in this church sounds a bit heavy. But I want you to think about it in this way. That Jesus judges to put an end to evil. He judges because he wants to put a stop to conflict and suffering and pain. Because he fully intends to set things right. And we so desperately need for things to be set right. Because we should not be content with things as they are.
And so he comes as a judge. And that is not a bad thing. That is, in fact, a very, very good thing. The best thing. It is, in fact, something to long for. But of course, if you hear about the coming of the judge and you think, yes, but that sounds a bit concerning to me. Well, then I'd point out this. That while Jesus comes to judge, he doesn't come to judge rashly or cruelly or harshly. He is a judge who is quick to show mercy, quick to extend forgiveness, quick to declare people innocent. All that is required is that we ask him for those things. All that's required is that we recognize why Jesus had to be made the judge and what he's done for the benefit of those who will be judged. Namely, all of this, or all of us. See, we all need Jesus to say, I will not hold any of your sins or failures against you. Because I already suffered for those things. I already dealt with those things. I have already made compensation. Don't ignore what he did. What he intends to do. Recognize. We need Jesus as our rescuer. Because he is everything we ought to be, but fail to be. He is what God, our creator, most wants us to be. People who live in step with him and look like him. Or as Isaiah predicted, righteousness will, will be his belt and, and faithfulness, the, the sash around his waist. See, in Jesus, we have a man who has satisfied the expectations of God. In Jesus, we have someone who can be described as righteous. And without those words coming across as, you know, kind of an insult, like, oh, they think they're so righteous. No, what we really mean is hypocrite. No, in Jesus, we have someone who is truly righteous, who has truly been all that God desires someone to be. Someone who has always done what is right. Someone who has always resisted the selfish path, the sinful path, the self-serving path. In Jesus, we have someone who has always been faithful to what God desires and calls for. Someone who can be counted upon and trusted. And the beautiful thing is that he is willing to share all of that with us. And when we place our, our hope, our, our trust in him, when we have faith in him, we do indeed get to share in all of that.
So I tell you, ask him for help if you have not. Ask him for rescue if you have not. Ask him for transformation and for better and for more because he is willing and able to give those things to all who ask. Jesus is looking to save us, to rescue us. But he is also looking to change us. He's not just satisfied with who we are, but he also has a vision for who we can be. See, Jesus is a savior. He is a rescuer. But he isn't just looking to to reach out a hand, give us a one-time help, No, he's looking to come into our lives. He's looking to to be a part of us, one with us. The the head of a body of which we are, are members. And he's looking to change us. He isn't looking for followers who are just nice and loving, you know, one month a year in the the run up to Christmas. Or followers who occasionally get into the, the spirit of the season and show a little bit more kindness, a little more generosity, a little bit more forgiveness to those around them. Now he's looking for permanent changes. And you might hear about that and you might think, that's a lot. That's a lot to think about changing, you know, being changed. But the beautiful thing, of course, about a rescuer is that he has the power to make this change a reality. And he's going to begin making those changes a reality. And he's going to keep working on those things to make them a reality. See, he has a vision for us in which he transforms all of us from spiritual Grinches and Scrooges to people who truly have hearts overflowing with love, love for God, love for those around. Isaiah prophesies that the the promised one that he talks about in Isaiah 11 will bring about a day when the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. You might say, what's the point of that imagery? Why do we go from talking about this this righteous and faithful ruler to all of a sudden talking about lions and lambs? Well, it's because we are being presented with an image of change. This image, we can say, it only makes sense if those creatures have experienced a a fundamental change to who they are. The desire of the wolf, the leopard, the lion to kill and eat needs to be gone. Their, Their very nature would have to change. It's the same, you might say, with the lamb, the the goat, the calf. 
their inclination to flee their natural predators, to, to avoid the animals that would normally want to eat them. That would also need to change for this image to be a reality. But see, that's exactly what Jesus is up to, bringing about change. We might say today he is working to eliminate the predator in us. Now that sinful part of us, which is, is tempted to, to take advantage of others, use others, hurt others for our own purposes. We might say Jesus is also at work to eliminate the, the prey in us. The part of us that so easily lives in fear, lives in worry, lives in anxiety of what might happen or what harm might come our way. See, I suspect that Christians overwhelmingly underestimate just how much Jesus wants to change us and change this world in which we live. Jesus, we must understand, our Savior, our King, he isn't just looking for us to be a a little more forgiving than the average person. He isn't looking for us to be a little more patient than the average person, a little more loving or a little more kind. No, he wants to dramatically remake us so that, you know, we embody things like forgiveness, patience, love, the way God does. See, God is not looking to just slap a fresh coat of paint on you and call it a day when you turn to him, ask to be one of his children. No, those who go to God, those who repent of their sins, ask for salvation in Jesus Christ, they are going to find their very lives, their very natures, torn down to the studs and rebuilt. See, Jesus, our prince now king, he calls for for strange, radical behavior from those who follow him. He tells us when people hate you, love them. When they're saying evil things about you, be praying for them. He tells us to live lives serving those around us rather than seeking to be served by those around us. He tells us to think less of ourselves and more of others. He tells us to focus more on the life and the inheritance to come than on the life that is in front of our very eyes that we are experiencing right now. Do we read the scriptures and recognize what God is trying to accomplish? I suspect we often underestimate how much change should occur and also how much change can occur through God's power and grace. Because God has a vision for his people. 
And it goes far beyond there being Christians in the world who, who just avoid committing any major sins, but are otherwise just like everybody else around them. God has a vision about bringing about peace and love and joy to this world. Not just on a surface level, when we show up at church for a couple hours a week kind of way. Now he's a plan to bring about peace, safety, security. To create environments where all might begin to experience something of the future that he has in store. In which there is complete peace which there is hope, which there is calm and joy and abundance. I wonder how far now do we strive to create an atmosphere of of peace, security around us? I wonder, do, do all the men in our midst recognize just how intimidating they can be to those who are women, children, maybe their own wives, daughters. Because I think many, many Christian men underestimate just how much fear they can cause in others of just raising a voice, raising an arm in a threatening manner can bring about fear and terror into the lives of others. I wonder, do those of us who are white, Caucasian, do we realize how intimidating it can be for someone of a different ethnicity ethnicity to, to come into our church buildings with their extremely white Caucasian congregations? Do we recognize how easily we can make them feel excluded or rejected just by dropping little comments here and there which show insensitivity to the lives and experience of others? Do those of us who are popular at school Do we recognize how easily we can make other students feel unwanted, excluded, ostracized? I wonder, are we as believers, are we looking and asking for God to be at work within us? that we might make others feel loved, feel the peace of our God. Are we, as believers, simply pursuing, you know, to kind of step back here in a larger way, a surface-level Christianity, where we put a Christian veneer and use Christian words for things, But forget to go deeper and to work on creating community, creating a church of Jesus Christ 
where people truly are able to feel all of that love and peace and joy which the Bible talks about. Because I don't believe we can say that God intends for all of that to wait for the life to come. To say you can be content with the amount of chaos and the amount of discomfort and the amount of sin that is present, you know, within the church or within the world today. Because one day, I will change it. Now there's an implication that even now, God desires to change it. Now we're told, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. I recognize a lot of that imagery doesn't necessarily speak to us today. Now most of us today are not particularly worried about the wildlife. You know, I've known the odd Aussie in Canada who was really afraid of bears. It was like, you know, those bears you have in Canada, that's freaky. They're huge. And I can certainly say for my own part, I would have concerns about living in Australia. A continent in which everything is venomous and wants to kill you and can. Which even the mammals have developed poison sacs. I'm thinking they have a platypus. But you know, the people who have grown up in these nations as Canadians, we don't really worry about bears as Australians. They don't really worry about, you know, the spiders, the snakes, the man of wars, the sharks, and everything else. It's like, oh, you shake out your boots and you're fine. Things used to be different back in the time of the Bible. Lions, bears, they ate people regularly. It was a thing. Now, we miss what God is trying to tell us in these words of Isaiah, if we, we hear about the lion and the bear and all of them being at peace and we think, oh, this is about what heaven is going to be like. Now, the primary point is, is not just to give us a picture of heaven. It's to point to God's power to bring about radical change through his ideal king. Change which will impact humanity as much as everything else in creation. Oh, the, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the, the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And you look at those words and say, we have there a picture of a world at peace. But it is a world that is at peace because God has changed things for them. Because God's promised servant came, changed things for them. See, what we have in Isaiah is a picture of a world at peace. A world, you might say, where it kind of feels like Christmas all the time. A world in which so many of the slogans and the catchphrases that you might hear on the radio or see on signs at this time of year, now those won't be empty catchphrases to anyone, but a true and accurate summary of reality. Because it's a world in which people know God. 
See, God says, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day, the whole earth, all of us, will know the Creator in a deeper, more intimate sense. And knowing Him perfectly, we will experience His perfect blessings and His perfect peace. But here's the thing, as believers, already now we have the privilege of knowing this God. Already now we can fear this God and glorify him for the amazing things that he has graciously done for us. Already now we can begin to seek his rescue and begin to pursue and ask for the change that he speaks of. Now, the world that gets described in Isaiah, at the end of our text, it's radically different from our own. It's unlike anything we have ever seen or that we do see. But that is not to say that it is a world that is impossible a world that is out of reach. Because we have the Son of God. We have that shoot out of the stump of Jesse. We have our Savior on whom the Holy Spirit dwells in power. And he now reigns. And he is going to bring that world about. Amen.